Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? <laughs> Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Behind every hit, there's a hardworking songwriter. Today, we talk to two of the best. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Jim and I are joined by legendary songwriting duo Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, the team behind You've Lost That Love and Feeling, On Broadway, and more. Plus, we review the new record by indie folk band Bon Iver. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. Hello. Hi. My name is Jesus Christ. You have a lovely home. Hello. It's an amazing book. Bonjour. How? They am Elder White. Are these your kids? This book gives you the secret to eternal life. Sound good? Eternal life. With Jesus Christ. It's super fun. Hello. That is a little bit of the original cast performing music from the Book of Mormon, the hit Broadway play. Greg, we have two interesting cross-pollinations of Broadway and the pop charts. Number one, in the wake of their success at the Tonys, the producers of the Book of Mormon, which we know as the guys from South Park, it debuted at number three on the Billboard pop charts right behind Adele and Lady Gaga, who've been duking it out for a couple of weeks. Not since 1969 has a Broadway album been that high on the pop charts, and back then, Hair was at number one for 13 weeks. So Book of Mormon is following in the footsteps of Hair, the dawning of the age of Aquarius. All right, now if that is an example of Broadway going onto the Billboard charts, here is an example of a Billboard chart phenomenon going to Broadway. You remember Susan Boyle? I do. Yeah, the 2009-2010 phenomenon who was a big hit on Britain's Got Talent, went on to sell 14 million copies. Now it is going to be a eventually getting to Broadway stage musical. Someone is playing her in what is going to be called I Dreamed a Dream. That was one of her most popular songs. Says the producer, it is all about the qualities of a fairy tale, but with the added bonus of being absolutely true. Well, the change was made up time in the big man Joe in the bay. From the coastline to the city, all the little brothers raise their heads. I'm gonna sit back right easy and laugh. Well, the school up in my plus the city in the land. Tent down on freeze out. That is 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Bruce Springsteen introducing 
Clarence Clemens to the world. The change was made uptown, and the big man joined the band from his uh, 1975 Born to Run album. Clarence Clemens, the ultimate sidekick, the hired gun who was larger than life, has died at the age of 69, several days after suffering a stroke. Clemens was at Springsteen's side from the very beginning. He joined the band in 71, when uh, Springsteen was still struggling to get outside of the New Jersey boardwalk and make himself a national figure. Clemens played with him on every record, was at his side for all of his key concerts, the first among equals in a very large band full of characters. It was more than just a bandmate or a hired gun. This was a friend, a brother, a comrade in arms. And, And that's the way they carried themselves throughout their career. So a very key figure in Springsteen's life, that saxophone at the heart of some of his biggest songs as well. I think carrying on the tradition of King Curtis and Junior Walker, the great R&B and rock and roll saxophone players that preceded him, Clemens brought that spirit, that brawny sound, into Springsteen's band. And even in later years, when his role in the band frankly diminished, he was still a beloved figure on stage, you know, always getting the biggest applause. And at the end of every show, he and Springsteen sharing an embrace at the end. That was like a part of that tradition. I would agree with that. People know that I am critical, to say the least, of Springsteen. And I've been critical of Clarence Clemens. But I did love the energy and the smiles he brought to the Springsteen stage show. You know, saxophone-wise, I don't know. Not for nothing did Lady Gaga tap him to play (laughs) on her new album. She wanted a dated 80s sax sound, and Clarence gave it to her. Well, I mean, I would disagree with Data, Jim. I don't think you can hear a song like Born to Run or Badlands without hearing that saxophone. It was more than just dated. I think it was uh, iconic and and timeless. I would say the same about this next solo that I'm going to play. On the Born to Run album, I think Clemens' saxophone was the key instrument besides Springsteen's voice. He caps the album with the song Jungle Land, Basically an album about a group of characters desperate to get out of the town they were born in, but not really sure if they're going to get there. And this song sort of sums it up, and Clemens' saxophone solo really sums it up. It was meticulously created in the studio, 16 hours where they spent orchestrating this solo, and I think Clemens really nailed the mood of the entire album with it. This is Clarence Clemens, the saxophone solo on Jungle Land on Sound Opinions. Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band on Sound Opinions featuring Clarence Clemens, dead at the age of 69. 
you're listening to Sound Opinions, that is the classic rock single, Walkin' in the Rain by the Ronettes, one of countless songs written by our guest today, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, one of the great songwriting teams of all time. Started in the late 50s, early 60s as part of the Brill Building era, that famous location in Midtown Manhattan, which spawned countless songwriting teams, basically like a hit factory for many major artists of that era. Primarily Phil Spector recruited these teams to write songs for his hit makers. While and Mann were two of the songwriters who actually survived that era and continued to have hits throughout the decades. But, I mean, Jim, listen to this lineup of, of songs that they've created. The Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, On Broadway for The Drifters, Kicks for Paul Revere and the Raiders, We Gotta Get Out of This Place for the Animals, a list that goes on and on through the decades, some of the most timeless songs ever written, while creating the lyrics, man writing the music, together making some timeless rock and roll. Greg, Barry and Cynthia just got a major honor by winning the Johnny Mercer Award presented by the Songwriters Hall of Fame. We thought it was high time we brought him to Sound Opinions. Barry, Cynthia, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank thank you. you. So, Cynthia, you and Barry became involved romantically and as songwriting partners pretty much at the same time. Tell us how you got together. I was writing with a singer-songwriter named Teddy Randazzo, and uh, Barry came up to play Teddy a song, and I saw him and I was smitten, and I found out where he was signed as a writer, and I arranged to have an appointment with Don Kirshner at Alden Music so that I could see Barry again. So Alden Music is is like right next door to the Brill Building. It's at 1650 Broadway. The Brill Building's like across the street, right? Right. Well, yeah, it's like a block away. Okay. 1650 had, at that time, the younger, the Young Turks, the publishing companies that had younger writers signed. Well, so you were writing with somebody else, Cynthia, and, and you saw this guy, you were smitten. Yes. And you wanted to write with him? Yes. And well, I no, I wanted to date him. I didn't oh. care about writing with him. Uh, that was a polite way of saying that you wanted to date me. Yes. <laughs> right. Wow. You know what blows my mind about this era? You are extremely young when you're working there. I mean, you are writing hit songs, and you're like late teens, early 20s, right? Well, my first hit, I was 19 years old. It was a song called She Say Um Doobie Doom by the Diamonds. Yes. Sounds like it was written by a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and later on, I did Who Put the Bump? So, right. And then I, learned, then I learned how to speak English. And then you wrote with me. Who put the bump in the bump, a bump, a bump? Who put the rhyme in the rhyme, a line, a ding, dong? Who put the bop in the bop, shabop, shabop? Who put the dip in the dip, 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 dip? Who was that man? I'd like to shake his hand. He made my baby fall in love with me. The relationship developed sort of outside of the writing, or would you say that the writing brought the two of you closer together where you ended up being married? Barry, do you want to take that, or should I? Yeah, I really think that the writing did bring us closer together. We were attracted to each other, but the the writing kind of clinched the deal. I asked to see her lyrics, and I really loved what she had written. She, She had a style that was very sophisticated, but at the same time, it was very soulful. But she she really wasn't familiar with the pop market, and I told her to listen to the Drifter records, and I told her to listen to the Everly Brothers and and a lot of R&B records, too, and uh, and she picked it up very quickly, and she was able to combine that sophistication with soul. I was um, writing for another company at the time uh, called Lesser Music, 
which was owned by Frank Lesser, who wrote How to Succeed in Business and Most Happy Feller. And the writers up there were mostly show writers, and because that's the direction I thought my career would be going. Yeah, the Broadway thing was very important to you. I know you had some theatrical background. You did some dancing, right, Cynthia? So how did you end up, quote-unquote, slumming in in, in the pop world? (laughs) Well, you know, it's amazing what love and lust will do to your (laughs) career direction. (laughs) But Uh Barry was in rock and roll, and he taught me rock and roll. And we started writing, and uh, I got a little diverted from the theatrical path. For about 40 years. (laughs) He put the bump in your bump shabomp, right? (laughs) He absolutely did. You know, that's a very good way of putting it. As I've read the story, when you first approached Kirshner, thinking you wanted to get your eyes on this cute-looking guy, Barry, again, they were interested in hiring you, and they they wanted to put you with this other songwriter. What's her name? Oh, yeah, Carol King. (laughs) Right. You could have had a completely different career in life. Well, I don't think it it really would have happened because um, Carol was writing with her husband, Jerry Goffin, and Jerry at the time was a chemist during the day. He was a chemist by day, songwriter by night. Kirshner said, she's not writing with anyone during the day. She should be writing with somebody. So why don't you write with her? So I went out to Carol's apartment in Brooklyn, and she gave me a melody that I really liked. I uh, Even I, who did not know pop music, thought this was very hit-sounding. And by the time I got home, my phone was ringing, and it was Carol saying, you know, I know this isn't the right way to start a writing relationship, but Jerry came home from work, and he heard the melody I gave you, and he was very interested in it himself, and I have to ask you for it back. Wow. She said, he even has a title. So I said, well, what's the title? You know, and she said, "Take good care of my baby." Mm. I said, "That's a that's a good title, Carol. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm giving it back to you." Take good care of my baby. Please don't ever make her blue. Just tell her that you love her. Make sure you're thinking of her in everything you say and. And after that, Jerry and Carol actually came over to my house. I was still living with my mom, and they brought their little baby, and my mom babysat while we wrote a song called Happy Times Are Here to Stay, and Tony Orlando recorded it. You've been hurt. I can see that you've been crying. You've been hurt. But your tears can so dry Now you, you got a man Who's gonna get you smiling every day Baby, happy times are here to stay You were successful at a really young age. What's fascinating to me is that there was these stables of songwriters. You know, the Brill Building, you and Alden Publishing... I mean, we're talking about some heavy hitters, Neil Sedaka, Howard Greenfield, you know, King Goffin, yourselves. Um, Barry, describe what a working day was like here with these songwriters around. I mean, were you guys literally like working right next to each other, competing for songs? Yeah, sometimes. Um, Alden Music had offices where there was a big main room and 
on, in the, on the circumference of the room were these little cubicles. There must have been about five or six. And the cubicles just had like a, an upright piano, a piano bench, a chair, and, and an ashtray. Someone, mm. Some people would be lucky and they'd have a window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so a lot of times we would be writing, and Kirshner would say, the drifters are up. So everybody would run to, the, to their cubicles and they'd start writing for the drifters. So you'd hear everybody's melodies through the wall and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to pick my baby up and take her to the picture show. Everybody in the neighborhood is dressing up to be there too. And we're going to have a ball just like we always do. Saturday night at the movies, who cares what picture you see? But it was a very competitive atmosphere, very competitive, especially between Carol and Jerry and Cynthia and myself. They were the talents, and uh, they felt that way about us. And uh, so it was, it was... Well, everyone was talented, but they yeah. were the other married couple talent, and they were also our closest friends, friends. up there. Yeah, it was very confusing. Because at, being that they were our friends, we really had great times with them. We really loved them. But at the same time, we wanted that next record. And they wanted that next record. Right. And, so uh, it was um, bad news when we heard they got it. But we'd have to smile and say, great. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so a well-natured but, but nonetheless intense competition like the Beatles and the Stones a couple of years later. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Blame it on the bossa nova when it's We're going to continue talking to the songwriting duo Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Now I'm glad to say I'm as bright to be And we're gonna raise a family And when our kids ask how it came about I'm gonna say to them without a doubt Blame it on the Bossa Nova Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. I know just how bad 
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the great Wilson Pickett with Come Home Baby, another example of the songwriting prowess of Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. This husband and wife songwriting duo originally made its mark during the brill-building era of the 60s, working alongside such names as Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, and the great Phil Spector. They were recently awarded the Johnny Mercer Prize by the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and we thought it would be a great time to look back and get some of the stories behind their classic songs. Cynthia, Barry, we've got to start with You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Recorded by the Righteous Brothers in 1964, it's been honored by BMI as the most performed song of the 20th century. That's saying something. Take us through that song. Well, let me start, and Barry, you take over, okay? Sure. Um, we had met Phil Spector, and he asked us to come out to California to write with him. So we packed up our dog, and we flew to California, and we stayed at a place called the Chateau Marmont because it was the only place that would take a German shepherd as a guest. Hmm. And we rented a piano, and Phil played us a record by these two guys from Orange County, and uh, they were both up-tempo songs that Bill Medley had written. One was called Little Latin Loopy Lou, and the other was called My Babe. And he said, I've just signed these guys, and believe it or not, they're um, white guys from Orange County, although they sound like Sam and Dave. And we would want to write something, have you guys write something for them. So we went back to the Chateau. Yeah, we were really turned on because we loved the way they sang. So we went back to the Chateau Marmont. And we started, and we started. We wrote two verses and a chorus, and we didn't know how to end the the chorus. So we called up Phil. We wanted to get his input, and we used the the title "You've Lost That Lovely Feeling" as a dummy title. We didn't really like the title. So when we played it for Phil, and when we were done playing, we said to Phil, "Now, Phil, man, you know, don't worry about the title. We'll get a better title." He says, "No, you won't, man. That's the title." Mm. We ended up finishing the song. We went over to Phil's place and we finished the rest of the song. And then the next day, we went up and we played it for Bill and Bobby. So uh, Phil and I sang the song to him. And after we were done, it was dead silence. Then Bill said, "Well, um, no, it was Bobby. Uh, Bo- no, no, no. Bill oh, said sounds oh. sounds good for the Everly Brothers. You know? Oh, right. <laughs> and then Bobby, and then Bobby said, "Well, what am I? You know, because the way the song was set up, it was Bill was singing the verses, and then Bobby would just do harmony on the choruses, and then they'd trade off on the bridge. So when they were done, Bobby says, "Well, what am I supposed to do? Why the big guy's singing?" And Phil didn't miss a beat. He says, "You go to the bank." <laughs> you never close your eyes anymore. No tenderness like grief in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, 
what's amazing to me is that you were kind of on this made-to-order business, constant deadlines. You had to write on a deadline all the time. And yet you were able to come up with these very, some people could describe that as kind of generic, so universal to the point where I could lose any kind of, you know, personal feeling. And yet you were able to drop these lines in there. Like, I understand that Spectre was blown away by the first line of You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Right away, he seemed to sense that you had something there that was above and beyond. I well, it was I, the first, uh, the verses and choruses. I think the line that knocked him out. Yeah, there, you can. It was something play. beautiful's dying. When, yeah. I, when I sang that line, he said, "You know, I feel like crying." I mean, it, it was a very moving line. It makes me just feel like crying. never imagined that it would be the most performed song of the 20th century. It, it was just something that we liked, and Phil made a magnificent record. Yeah, and Phil said, you know, this is going to be a very important song for all of us. And Cynthia, being a show baby, a theater kid, said uh, any song that has whoa, whoa, whoa in it could never be important. <laughs> Which shows you how much I know. We had a How were you able to sort of get that sort of specificity and sort of that personal connection? You know, when you kiss me, you know, you never close your eyes anymore, those kind of things. I mean, it seemed like you were drawing on on personal stuff and investing in in these universal songs. And I think that's one of the keys to why that song is so well-loved over the years. Well, I have two thoughts about that. I think that really great writers are not not just perceptive. I almost feel they're psychic in a way. And they can, they have a the capacity to almost become the artist they're writing for. And I think that really is a tremendous advantage. So that's one of the reasons. And I'm forgetting the second reason. (laughs) But um, there's a time in your life when, in a creative person's life, Mm. when they're very much in tune with the cultural zeitgeist or the universal thought Mm. and can tune into it and I just kind of felt at that point that anything that I like or anything that that I write about is something that other people feel. So uh, some of it was based on personal experience, some of it was based on friends' experience, and some of it was just based on that part of your brain that clicks on when someone says, be creative. Yeah, I think that even if you're writing for an artist, and you may not have lived that artist's life, but I still think some of your personal experience will go into that lyric or that melody. No doubt about it. Um, Cynthia, I know that some of the sophistication you are bringing to these pop songs to this day, I think, is striking. Uh, I'm thinking of something like Uptown by the Crystals, mm-hmm. which I know has been described as almost like one of the first songs that was, you know, sociological. You know, and here we were right. in the pop yeah. heyday. Again, 
drawing on these very specific kind of vignettes. I mean, were these things that you would observe and then sort of write down? I mean, how would these sort of observations come to you that you would end up incorporating them in lyrics to hit songs? Um, That was something that I observed. But first, I want to say that I went to a very progressive high school, and everybody was into Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and and hootenannies and that kind of thing. And I saw uh, music as a form of social protest and a form of expressing political views. And so I think I brought a little of that to pop music when I got into pop. With Uptown, I had observed very tall, handsome African-American guy pushing something that, you know, those, those things that have all the clothes on them in the garment district. And he, he looked like an African king. And I thought, hmm, here he is pushing a closer act. What is his life like? And then I wrote that song. But then he comes up, down he jeans into my tenement. Up, down where folks don't have to pay much rent. And when he's there with me, he can see that he's everything. Then he's tall, he don't crawl, he's a king. What about on Broadway? It's partly a celebration of New York, but also there's that undercurrent there, too, like with Uptown, mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, the, the neon lights aren't all that bright for everybody. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had originally written it, Cynthia and I had originally written it for a girls' group. Lieber and Stoller weren't involved. And it kind of was the same melody to a, to a large mm-hmm. degree. The verses were, uh, they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. But anyway, it was about girls. The girls group who wanted to get out of out of town and get to Broadway. Mm. Nothing happened with that version, by the way. But it was recorded. <laughs> I'm Phil Spector recorded it. Yeah, and Carol and Jerry cut it with the with the with cookie. cookies. I hear the neon lights are bright on Broadway. I hear the dreams come true there every day. We heard that Jerry and Mike were about to go in and record the Drifters. So we thought, well, why don't we just go play that for them and see what happens? So we played it for them, and they really liked it a lot, but they felt that it needed a rewrite. And uh, so they gave us a choice to either we could rewrite it ourselves or rewrite it with them. And so Cynthia and I jumped at the chance to, to rewrite it with the Lieber and Stoller. Cause, I mean, if we idolized anyone, it was them. Mm. Then all of us together rewrote it, and it became what it is today. A 
much better song, even though the first... And a great lesson in songwriting. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it was amazing to watch the way Jerry and Mike work, especially Jerry, the way he threw lines out at you. And if he got stuck, he said, well, let's go on to the next verse, you know, and we'll come back to this. And Cynthia, being basically an obsessive lyricist, <laughs> she always felt that you have to finish the verse and then go to the chorus and go back to the next verse. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a lesson for her. What, what about the cinematic quality of these songs? I mean, you know, we, we, we talked about You've Lost That Love and Feeling. I mean, obviously that was Spectre, Lieber Stoller with On Broadway. How much of that was sort of envisioned by the way you put the music together, Barry? I mean, was it, was it sort of like inherent in the demos or in your instructions to the producers and the performers about the way you wanted a thing to sound? Or did you sort of hand it off to them and say, do whatever you want with it? Yeah, I, I basically handed it off, but, you know, Friends or musician friends of mine always said that with the way I played piano as if the whole arrangement was in my piano playing. And to a degree, they're right. Also, Barry's vocal interpretation yeah. was often absorbed by the artist. And yeah. a lot of people will say, you know, I can hear you in the other artists that sing your songs. That's quite a tribute. Would it be a case where that they would come to you as they were recording and ask for tips, or would you would you actually be observing a, a lot of the recording no. process? No, no. Phil Spector took, I think I gave him a piano voice demo. Yeah, but it, yeah. There were, Barry did put the vocal <clears throat> down. Yeah, yeah. And in most cases, I don't think it happened on Broadway, with on Broadway, no. but in most cases there was a demo. And whether it was elaborate, where Barry kind of laid out how he wanted the record to sound, or whether it was just a piano vocal with him, there was always that Barry Man quality of how a lyric is read mm-hmm. that other people picked up on. We're talking to songwriters Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil on Sound Opinions. I want to ask you both about We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Again, we come back to that universality, whether it's the animals singing about breaking out of industrial England or you in your own lives feeling stuck. How did that song come together? We originally wrote the song for the Righteous Brothers, and Barry cut an elaborate, fabulous demo. And when it was done, everybody was saying, my God, this sounds like a record. We, at the time, were involved with Alan Klein, who was later managed the Stones and the Beatles, but at that point he was managing some other people. After the demo, I think we were excited about it. We went up to his office, and we played it for him, and then we left the demo there for some reason and, and forgot. And I was on Redbird Records at the time. Then we played a copy for Redbird, and they said, we want to put this out as a single. In the meantime, we didn't know Alan Klein had sent it to a client of his named Mickey Most who cut the animals. And so just as Barry's record was set to come out, we got a call from Kirshner saying, I've got great news. You've got a song that's number two in England. And we said, oh, what song? And he <laughs> said, we've got to get out of this place. And we said, no. Oh, my God, no. It's the first time songwriters ever screamed no when someone told them they had a hit. But that killed Barry's record. Girl, a for me and 
what, what did you think of the animal's version when you eventually heard it? I laughed because it was a shock. It was truly a shock. They had left out an awful lot of the lyric and and substituted their own. And yeah, they, and then they repeated the same lyric. Yeah, for the first and second, second verse, second which verse. you know, as a songwriter, I just felt wasn't craft. And mm-hmm. and had they asked me to change it for them, maybe I wouldn't have because of Barry's record. But yeah. at least I would have had a chance to write something that I felt proud of. So I was kind of upset. And to this day, I think every time we run into Eric Burden, we both kind of look the other way. <laughs> because he knew I was upset, uh-huh. you know. Watch my daddy hit bed and tie. Watch his hair been a turning gray. He's been working and slaving his life away. I know he's been working so hard. I've been working too, baby. His performance is amazing. The record for what it is is amazing. And it went on to have so much meaning for so many people in the Vietnam War that, I mean, Eric, all is forgiven. Let's be friends and Uh let's look each other in the eye next time we meet. Right, right. What about, speaking of the sociology, working an anti-drug message into kicks? Became a huge hit for Paul Revere and the Raiders. Still heard on Garage Rock compilations <laughs> yeah. decades on, right, Cynthia? Yeah. It was kind of subversive. Yeah, Cynthia wrote it because of a friend of ours. It was written with someone in mind, and it wasn't particularly popular point of view at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. But we thought maybe he would hear the song and realize what we were saying to him, but he didn't. Don't it seem like kids just keep getting harder to find And all your kids ain't bringing you peace of mind Before you find out it's too late, girl, you better get straight No, but not with kicks You just need help, girl as songwriters, I imagine you guys sometimes have to subsume your egos. You create this thing that you're really proud of. Then it goes off, and it's not under your control anymore. Sometimes your baby comes back, and I bet you hardly recognize it. Normally, as a songwriter, it's kind of, as Barry often says, it's the it's the job we chose for ourselves. <laughs> so, this is the business the, we chose. Yeah, and... Um, so it, it goes with the territory. You write something, and you're proud of it, and you love it, and you're walking in the supermarket, and you hear someone saying, and this is, you know, so-and-so's uh, with the title of the song, and you want to say, I wrote that. That's mine. But that's not what the job is. The job is to serve the artist. We want to thank Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde for being our guests on Sound Opinions. It's been great to talk to you. Great. Thank you. It's been fun for us, too. Here you come again Just when I've begun to get myself together You waltz right in the door Just like you've done before And wrap my heart round your little we want to hear from you listeners out there. What are your memories of these classic pop songs? And what do you think makes great songwriting? 
Call our hotline to share your thoughts, 888-859-1800. Next up, Greg and I review the new album by indie folk rockers Bone Iver. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRS. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Calgary from the new album, the second album by Boney Bear. Self-titled, in fact, self-titled twice, Boney Bear, Boney Bear. Greg, Justin Vernon, who goes under the nom de band Boney Bear, first broke big on the scene in 2008 with a quiet, sensitive record called For Emma, Forever Ago. He had been in the music world before that with kind of a progressive rock, folk rock band called De Yarmond Edison, but he made his mark with that Emma record. Taking off this Eau Claire, Wisconsin native to the backwoods, locking himself in a cabin, very Henry David Thoreau, his heart was broken, he poured it all out on a very DIY, stripped-down, bare-bones recording. Now, he put a band together to tour after that record came out, and the new record, the eagerly anticipated follow-up, is a lot more lush and a lot more produced. There are the members of his traveling band, there are some horn players, there's great pedal steel player Greg Lees, there's even some 80s synthesizer pop keyboards. We'll give our opinions on this new record, Bon Iver, Bon Iver, in a minute. First, let's hear a song. This is called Beth Slash Rest by Bon Iver on Sound Opinions.
That is Beth Rest on Sound Opinions from the new Boney Vare record. Boney Vare. Boney Vare. Justin Vernon. Boy, Jim, the mythology behind this guy is just precedes this record, doesn't it? I mean, he went, you know, made this record in a, in a backwoods cabin up in Wisconsin, sold 300,000 copies. He's getting calls from Kanye West to come out to Hawaii and jam with him. I mean, things have happened very fast for Justin Vernon in the last couple of years, enabling him to afford a, a much bigger band, fuller orchestrations. This is a step up from its predecessor in terms of just how lushly orchestrated it was. The first record was basically Vernon with his laptop and auto-tune and a guitar, making the entire record on his own, basically. This one, you can hear the fuller orchestrations, and I appreciate that. I was not a huge fan of the first record. I know many people were. But to me, it was basically one tone throughout that entire record, a beautiful mood record, but one mood it was. And if you weren't in the mood for that particular mood, it didn't work for you. (laughs) On this record, he does vary the palette a little bit more, and I think that's a strength. The, The first few cuts, the arrangements on there are the real strength of the record. Once again, it's difficult to discern exactly what Vernon is singing about. Some of the lyrics seem to be gibberish. There's a lot of distortion with the auto tune. The vocals are very high in that falsetto range. It's just another texture on the record, the voice. But when the record gets to the middle part, it really starts to sag. The melodies become quite a bit softer, less developed. By the time you get to that last track, which we just played, Bathrest, I'm having bad dreams about Steve Winwood, keyboard pop of the 80s, or Bruce Hornsby, whom Bon Iver has said is one of his heroes. I, I don't think that's a good thing. As much as I like about half this record, I have to say the other half is pretty drippy and snoozy. I'm going to have to give it a burn it. I think you're being kind. This is a trash it record. It's 100% drippy and snoozy. I think you're even insulting Bruce Hornsby there. I hear like Mike and the Mechanics in terms of uh, of like trying to do folk rock with cheesy synthesizers. I don't know what the fondness for this guy is because the lyrics are nonsensical, the falsetto is annoying, the production here especially is a drag, and the whole thing when it's not putting you into a stupor is just grating on you. I really dislike this record, I think, more than anything I've heard this year. So I'll trash it twice. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we can't live without. Greg, what do you got for us? Thank you, Jim. This week I wanted to pay tribute to Robert Johnson, one of the great bluesmen of all time, obviously. It's his 100th anniversary year. Robert Johnson died famously, of course, at the age of 27, before he was really that well-known. He was rediscovered by a later era of folk singers and rockers in the early 60s when his music was reissued. But it's important to note that he only got a chance to record 29 songs in his lifetime, never really got up north to the big urban centers to record and play there, so he wasn't really that well-known. But what is it about his music that resonates today? Why in fact, was he semi-famous in the 30s and now regarded as the iconic bluesman? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. 
One, his vocal style wasn't really suited to that jumping style of blues that was becoming famous in the late 30s. In, in, the, in those clubs on the Chitlin circuit, you had to really shout to be heard. Robert Johnson was a more nuanced singer. He was ideal for the recording studio, and I think that's what these recordings capture, the fact that he could use his voice like an instrument to shade meaning and to play different characters in his song, to bring down the volume as needed. Secondly, his guitar playing, virtuosic, incredible guitar player, was able to sound like two or three guitars playing at once. And thirdly, as a songwriter, at the time, it was common for a lot of blues singers to adopt other songs or lines from other songs and make them their own. Robert Johnson would steal ideas from other songwriters, just like everybody else did during that era, but then he would create entire new songs out of them. He would create coherent narratives. There was a beginning, middle, and end in his songs, which was unique for the time. So that's why these recordings really had an impact when they came out. And ever since, Robert Johnson has been regarded as, in many ways, the godfather of rock and roll. His songs have been covered numerous times in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond because the strength of those songs has resonated over the years, has has transcended their time. I'm going to play a track from a recent compilation of Johnson's recordings. Basically, everything that he recorded is worth hearing. And here's a track that was not issued in his lifetime, but finally surfaced in 1961. And I still think you can hear the absolute power of the track. Listen to the way he plays guitar, the 16th notes, almost sounding like a piano in parts of this song. The vocal treatment where he goes from indignation and anger at the start of the song to resignation at the end, creating a coherent narrative. And finally, the way he uses his voice throughout this song as an instrument to convey those shifting emotions. Robert Johnson, If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day on Sound Opinions. If I had possession over judgment day Now I run your daisy, said I don't know. 
That was Robert Johnson, If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick. The Sound Opinion's Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week it's the middle of the year, so we're going to do our best of 2011 so far. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, whose favorite Man in Wild song is somewhere out there as sung by Fievel in American Tale. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys. I love the show, but uh, I've got to quibble with your recent review of the new uh, My Morning Jacket record. It's not with the review itself, but with your comments about some of the songs that had apparently been written and ultimately rejected for a Muppets movie. You said something along the lines of, uh, you know, if your music can't even make the grade for a cartoon, something's wrong. You're setting aside the fact that the Muppets isn't a cartoon. I was surprised to hear this sort of broad brush dismissal of an art form out of the mouths of a couple of guys who are clearly so passionate about another long-disparaged popular art form, rock music. Whether you're talking about animation or comics, there are, there's some really interesting connections between cartooning and music. You could take Robert Crumb, who's done all sorts of strips about early 20th century folk and blues, and who's also a passionate collector of 78s. There's plenty of amazing music done for animation, too. Danny Elfman's work comes to mind. Um, you know, I think we can all agree that the new My Morning Jacket's kind of lame, but uh, you don't have to disparage the, the great, great art form of cartooning to get that point across. This is Ben Toll in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks, guys. Greg, it's uh, Abe in Chicago. I just listened to the Father's Day episode on Father's Day, and I was super stoked, and what a disappointment. With the exception of Box of Rain, the songs were terrible, and I found myself actually fast forwarding, so I don't know. Better luck next year. Just a box of rain, Believe it if you need it. If you don't just pass it on. Hi, this is Glenn from Bellevue, Washington. Thanks for the Father's Day show. As always, a great show. I thought I'd make a suggestion and add to the songs about Father's Day. This one's a little different since it's from the father's point of view. The song is by the English duo Everything But The Girl and is from a slightly obscure four-song EP. The title of the song is A Piece Of My Mind. The song tells how a father is having a hard time making sense of the gulf between his daughter that's grown up and his memories of her. He's clearly having difficulty trying to figure it out. And in three and a half minutes, they describe the small, poignant family drama and the rocky path between childhood and adolescence. It always jabs a hat pin in my heart when I hear it. Many fathers may want to listen to it before their kids get too old. Thanks again for the show. Take care now. 
Don't tell me I don't understand He said I know I don't understand I understood when you were ten Nothing's added up since then He said I'll give you a piece of my mind I'm not too old to take it Oh, just a piece of my mind This is Brad from Twin Lakes Listening to the uh, Bob Dylan trilogy and straight into Father's Day reminded me of a Dylan acceptance speech back in around 1991 uh, for his 50th birthday receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award. He gets up ready to make this grand speech about his father. I can remember something my father said he starts out with and then draws a complete blank. Well, um, all right. Well, my dad, he didn't leave me too much. You know, he's a very simple man, and uh, he didn't leave me a lot. But what he told me was this. He did say, son, he said, uh, he said so many things, you know. Babbles through, uh, he, my father told me so much, and then just rattled on through the end of it. Classic villain. Forever. messages to share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week on sound opinions from wbez chicago and distributed by prx